Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where sadly our submission of a 60-foot-tall statue of Prometheus made out of cream cheese did not win art prize. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan who are the only people who got the reference to art prize can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or you can listen streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And the one and only Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Did you title the piece Prometheus Unhinged or Prometheus Low-Fat? See, maybe if we had, we, we could have uh, gotten our, our fat art prize check. Yeah. yeah. Gotta love the art prize, though. Uh, frankly, this is the only time I've had fun walking around downtown Grand Rapids. What this is, is they're giving out the largest prize for visual arts in the world. It's um, a quarter of a million dollars is first place. So there's artists submitting stuff from all over the world. We have a Loch Ness monster in, uh, in the Grand River, which flows through our great city. I saw an awesome painting that was Satan digging a hole and dumping fossils in it. <laughs> really? And, yeah. And, Where was this? Yeah, and he has a thinking bubble which shows Satan is thinking that of a scientist with a clipboard years in the future who will be pointing to it as evidence. <laughs> oh my! And this is this is a an art yeah, prize submission. Yeah, it was an art prize it, submission. I wonder if it's meant to be ironic or not. <laughs> it's hard to say in this town. They'll call this one Velociraptor. <laughs> um, uh, before we we uh, move on, I want to apologize first off for my voice today. I spent last night for a long time uh, working at a haunted house where uh, every time a group of people would walk by, I'd drop through a wall and go, Bleh! so my voice is shot. It also explains for, for you gentlemen in the room with me why I'm wearing eyeliner. I was unable to remove all of my monster makeup this morning. See, so. I didn't notice, which tells you something about Dave. <laughs> yeah, if I walk yeah. in and he's wearing a particular, you know, if he has like garter belts on, I just walk right past and whatever, Dave. Yeah. Whatever you do. Yes, I love you. Well, so. Is it a hell house? A, a Christian hell house? It is not a hell house. And actually, they, the, we were talking about that last night. I was talking with some of the, the people who put together the show about hell houses, and, and they don't much care for those, which is too bad because that would be fun too. This person opened a textbook on human origin of the species. Speaking of which, wow. <laughs> now it's going to hell. Nice accidental segue there. Um, on our last episode, we talked about the movie Creation, uh, this movie about Charles Darwin starring Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connelly. And at the time, we talked about how the movie was unable to find a U.S. distributor. Good news. It's found one. Yeah, New Market is their new distributor, and the movie is slated for a wider release in December. The interesting thing to me is that the distributor who picked it up, I believe, is the same distributor who uh, released The Passion of the Christ. That's correct. Last week, we were we were kind of annoyed by the fact that Creation couldn't get a distributor. <laughs> we mentioned, 
you know, the passion passion of the Christ Christ can, you know, and just turns out to be it's the same same people releasing both. They'll probably try to edit it and sex it up a bit and have, you know, the passion of Charles where he's whipped. Instead of a debate, he'll be whipped by Bishop Wilberforce. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we should point out that uh, one listener commented on the blog that, and I've seen this in other places now since, that... The way a lot of us skeptics out there were, and and the the larger media was portraying this was this movie is is not palatable for conservative America. It can't find a distributor. Blah blah blah. And uh, the larger picture when we're talking about film distribution is that a lot of movies are struggling to find distributors right now. Not just this one film. Now I think there's I think there is reason to pick out this particular one. Because um, it opened the Toronto Film Festival, and for that movie to be struggling to find a distributor says a lot more than, you know, Podunk Joe's uh, indie film that that he can't find someone to release. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I can admit that this is overblown, and we could have covered it much better. But not really knowing much about the film world, I don't think any of us do. It just seemed odd that so many other countries had picked up the film, and presumably their economies aren't doing any better, um, but over here it's struggling to find a distributor. Now, of course, what's not struggling to get a distributor is Ray Comfort and uh, Kurt Cameron's edition of Origin of Species. We talked about that last week. Also on that episode, we had a comment from another listener who agreed with some of the assertions of Mr. Comfort and, uh, by proxy, Mr. Cameron. Yeah, Daniel G., author of the 2or3.net blog, uh, which is a, a Christian conservative blog. In fact, I would encourage our listeners to check it out if you want to see kind of the stereotypical right-wing Republican evangelical Christian mindset on virtually everything. Mm. Uh, his blog reads like a list of conservative talking points. Is this the guy who made the comment on our blog? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, he so, authors a blog of his own. And he listens to our show. Yeah, he left the comment. He got upset at the fact that we were mocking Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron for claiming that Hitler and eugenics and everything else can trace their influence back to Darwin's origin of the species. He felt that we were being naive. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you think that they are not historically related, you are fooling yourself. And he sent us a link to his blog, a blog post entitled, Darwin Understood the Social Application of His Theory. Dun, dun, dun. Opened his own death camp, did he, outside the sandwalk? Yeah, you weren't aware of that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's in the movie. That's why it got a U.S. distributor. Yeah, Daniel G. includes two quotes from Darwin, a quote from Nietzsche, and a quote from Hitler to try to establish that you can trace the lineage of of thought from Darwin all the way to Hitler. Uh, Here's the quote from Darwin. One was a quote from The Descent of Man. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. So, Mm, wow. Pretty strong. Yes, sounds sounds very genocidal in its implications, it isn't does. it? It does indeed. And Daniel G. links to a book review of From Darwin to Hitler, Evolutionary Ethics, Eugenics, and Racism in Germany by Richard Weichart. The review was in Christianity Today's Books and Culture Review. Was the reviewer uh, Ben Stein? 
<laughs> Edward T. Oaks actually was the reviewer. The name of the article is Darwin's Graveyards. Doesn't that violate Godwin's law of invoking Hitler in any debate? That, you know, yeah, can you start <laughs> off with that? <laughs> if you if you invoke Hitler, even in the title of your debate, you've already lost the debate. Yeah. <laughs> Edward Oakes explains the thesis of the book, quote, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection released a veritable Pandora's box of evil vapors and demonic spirits, which once unleashed on the eager European public, poisoned discourse on war, race, sex, nationality, diplomacy, colonization, economy, and anthropology, especially, it would seem, in Germany. Germany led itself and thereby the rest of the world, into the abyss of war and savagery applied eugenics, naively thinking all the while that it was helping to produce Darwin's higher animal from his eagerly anticipated, quote, war with nature. Darwin's war with nature. That's the movie I want to see. Maybe we should have an alternative universe where Chuck doesn't publish anything and just stays home with his family and then lets Wallace just, like, go ahead and publish. I was going to so, say. So that Wallace could, like, you know, the idea could just be associated with him and then the book would be from Wallace to Hitler. Yeah. And whoever comes around and comes up with that idea would just immediately be pilloried. Then. Well, and, and as far as um, social Darwinism goes, that that came from Spencer, right? Yeah, I mean, he coined that, the phrase survival the, of the, the fittest. Phrase, yeah, and, exactly. But in the review, they try to make a, a thing that, that Darwin never repudiated Spencer's idea, which is... That's questionable. He he didn't approve of these misuses of his. Sure, theory. but but Darwin was not. He was not a political figure. He was not. Uh, he was a scientist, and that's what he stuck with. Whatever Darwin's personal views were are irrelevant, really, to the science of the theory. Those True. are two different things. Right, right. It wouldn't matter if Darwin was one of the most monstrous racists the West has ever seen. You know, what matters is does the science actually support? Does natural selection explain evolution? Is it is it a theory that's supported by evidence? But this is just trying to invalidate the science by claiming that there is some negative consequence of the theory. Now, I think, though, Darwin deserves a little more defense than that, though, because Darwin is not the way they try to describe him. That He is not a racist. He is not a eugenicist. He did not anticipate a future or try to justify a future where where genocide and, and social Darwinism would be the laws of the land. In Weikart's book, From Darwin to Hitler, though, he makes the claim, quote, in Hitler's mind, Darwinism provided the moral justification for infanticide, euthanasia, genocide, and other policies that had been considered immoral by more conventional moral standards. Evolution provided the ultimate goals of his policy, the biological improvement of the human species. Darwinism, or at least some naturalistic interpretations of Darwinism, succeeded in turning morality on its head. And I find that to be one of the, one of the first things that is wrong with this idea, is that somehow... Everything was totally racially cool. Yeah. <laughs> None of these racist ideas. Superiority of, of any particular race. Right. No but, no notion of eugenics applied to race or any of these things ever existed before. Well, in, in 1859, I think things were, were pretty well fair for, for the races, weren't they? I, yeah, Way. especially in Alabama. No, yeah. listen. To, by that logic, then, could I claim that since that since uh, Christianity could fairly be, or you know, especially the values in the Old Testament could fairly be interpreted as God sanctioning genocide of different tribes, that Absolutely. therefore, that therefore, if I say, well, I'm justified then in wiping out the 
you know, Armenians because they're of a different religion, because the Bible says so. Could then I say, uh, according to that logic, that therefore the Bible paves the way for, for uh, you know, genocide? Because you could interpret it that way. God sanctioned it, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's that same type of logic. I think you actually have a much stronger case with that argument than you do with Darwin, because Darwin is not the the purported word of God. With that the is, Bible, you have this extra... If somebody takes a theory and takes it and runs with it and claims that it justifies whatever barbarities they want to do, therefore the theory is is wrong and evil, well, yeah. there I, I could invalidate religion with that theory. Exactly too. the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The irony of this, this though, is if you look at Darwin's uh, views with his theory, they're actually the opposite. That's yeah. correct. And to get a full appreciation of that, it helps to see what some of the views during Darwin's time, right before publishing Origin of Species, what were the common views on race, uh, especially in, in the scientific community? Basically, biology is and theology are very much integrated mm-hmm. at that time. So biology oftentimes was read through the lens of theology. And one of the popular ideas at the time was that Africans and non-whites generally were not just different races. They were entirely different species, entirely different kinds created by God. 1853 uh, book, An Essay on the Inequality of Human Races, promoted the belief that civilization collapsed due to racial mixing. Here's a quote from the book. Um, We must, of course, acknowledge that Adam is the ancestor of the white race. Oh, really? Yes. The scriptures are meant to be so understood. And this being admitted, there is nothing to show that in the view of the first compilers of the Adamite genealogies, those outside the white race were con- were counted as part of the species at all. That's not necessarily an old theory. Do you guys remember the uh, the Loving versus Virginia case that finally outlawed, mm, yep. overturned the ban on miscegenation and interracial marriage? This is in the 1960s. Yeah. But the judge in that case made a, an argument in, in, in the court on the basis of a religious separation of races here. Actually, I have the quote. This is, a, this is a judge reading this. Almighty God created the races, white, black, and yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he supo- separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. And, and this is an argument made for banning interracial marriage in the 60s. And and I love that, except for the interference, um, which, by the way, would involve what? The white man moving to North America, (laughs) the white man taking Africans out of Africa. Forcing Africans in a boat and taking them, yeah. I mean, but is the idea then, okay, so Adam is, is the man that's created and therefore the ancestor of the white races. All of the other races are included in what the other days of creation, when when the beasts of the field and some, the thing that creepeth are created. Some some believed yes, essentially, and that Cain was the first to intermarry. Where did Cain get his wife? He right. got them from these subhuman species, and so other wow. views of their views at the time was that uh, all human beings have been made perfect, um, but the savage races what they had done is they had morally degraded themselves uh, how through, through sin, through their worship of foreign gods and everything else, they had eventually uh, degraded themselves. And because they're morally degraded, it changes them physically as well. Yeah, is that, I mean, I I mean that's, that, well, is that related to the, 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 like the Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormons' books about the right. Indian, the Native Americans being like an evil, wicked tribe, the Lamanites and everything? Or is that why their skin is different or something? or? 
I simply don't know. It, it does it does match some of the beliefs at the time. Yeah, I mean, it um, certainly harkens back to an older time when when deformity um, is a sign of of a corruption. Um, so I I can buy that not as a legitimate theory, but as a, a theory that people would have had. At and this if you're time. an albino, you're good to go because you're whitest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in 1857, also before publishing of Origin, Josiah C. Knott and George Glidden argue in their book, Indigenous Races of the Earth. This is where those infamous sketches of, of the skulls of different races. Right. So Greeks are compared to uh, the skulls of, of Negroes is the term they would use. And chimpanzees are all lined up to try to show how... Um, you know, the white races are superior, and, and the authors of this book were also creationists. They also believed that science supported the biblical account. So mm-hmm. so prior to Charles Darwin, we actually see that scientific racism, as, as some have called it, definitely precedes origin of the species. Oh, if, yeah. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is, um, in his work, his anthropological work, he would dig up Native American graves and, and that sort of thing, and he would. There's the sense that he was studying them as humans, but not as as fully human as he was. Um, there's definitely a separation that he saw, and that's um, long before Charles Darwin. R. G. Price uh, on his website, the misportrayal of Darwin as a racist, which is an excellent resource. It's one. It's what I'll be using for a lot of information in this podcast recommend everybody who's interested in this subject go check it out he has very detailed rebuttals to the book from darwin to hitler rg price is basically of the mind that there was there were some that were protesting against colonization there were protest there were abolitionists protesting against slavery and it was in reaction to this tension that the abolitionists were creating that many kind of reached into science and tried to use scientific justifications to rationalize slavery, right. to, uh, to, to try to make the actions of, of Europeans at that time, white Europeans, seem justified. And so people trying to pervert science to their political ends is, is nothing new. At this time, it was integrated with Christian theology. But one of these pseudoscientific doctrines that we will see Darwin attacked ruthlessly with his theory with natural selection uh, was a view articulated by Archbishop Richard Watley in his 1854 book, Origin of Civilizations, that believed that God originally created mankind in a perfect state. Races are static, and so they shouldn't be mixed. But because of this racial mixing, several have fallen into savagery, was Watley's view. And Darwin's theory clearly upends that whole notion. Rather than just Darwin's theory upending it, a case has been made that Darwin's theory was predicated to prove that the races all came from the same lineage. That's the thesis of uh, of, uh, the book Darwin's Sacred Cause by Adrian Desmond and James Moore, where they document uh, all his correspondence with people before he went on the Beagle voyage, like when he was growing up uh, with his sisters, his education, to, to lay the case that he wanted to 
he wanted to build it because evolution had existed before as a theory. Oh, yeah. It was, it was his course. mechanism that was new. That he wanted, though, to build a case. His point was to build a case in the common lineage of everything, including the different races and, and not only species, but different races. And that's, I think this was pr- particularly egregious about the attacks on him is that by all accounts, Given the context of his time, you know, he might have made some remarks given that he was a white aristocrat about blacks maybe not being social equals yet. Sure. But given the context of his time, he was remarkably on the edge of racial, uh, of, of equality between the races, remarkably sensitive and vehemently opposed to slavery. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Here's a passage from Voyage of the Beagle, which I think puts it in perfect light. Charles Darwin says, those who look tenderly at the slave owner and with cold heart at the slave never seem to put themselves into the position of the latter. What a cheerless prospect without not even a hope of change. Picture to yourself the chance ever hanging over you of your wife and your little children, those objects which nature urges even the slave to call his own, being torn from you and sold like beasts to the first bidder. And these deeds are done by palliated men who profess to love their neighbors as themselves, who believe in God and pray that his will be done on earth. It makes one's blood boil. Yet heart tremble to think that we Englishmen and our American descendants, with their boastful cry of liberty, have been and are so guilty. There's, there's, I don't know if it's in the Beagle book, but there's another passage, too, where he recounts when, in his voyage in South America where he hears at a distance a slave being tortured for, I don't know what, trying to escape or something like that. He heard the voice of the, the slave screaming, and it almost sounds like PTSD-like that he can't get it out of his head after that, where he makes references later on back to that where he would always hear the slave screaming. And you know, and if you look at his correspondence with his sisters who were involved with all these the English anti-slavery movement, there was all kinds of correspondence where the right. whole family, because his his uh, Erasmus oh, yeah. Darwin had a history of abol- of that's of, his uh, grandfather, yeah, yeah, of agitating for abolition too. That there's correspondence going back and forth where we have the letters of, of them saying, you know, this will be helpful to our cause, and yeah. and Charles writing back to them. We, uh, Darwin, uh, Darwin and his wife write back to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Uh, the guy who led the first black regiment in the American Civil War. Wow. And uh and he writes to Wilberforce. Right. Um and 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 yeah, you have all these correspondences. The Darwins were big supporters of of the and, abolitionist. And William Lloyd movement. Garrison too. He was he re- there's a letter where he had heard that Garrison had had read some of his work and Darwin was almost like writing like a fanboy that was that was Right. Uh, giddy that that garrison would would be pleased by what had Darwin had written. Right, right. Yeah. When you go from Darwin's public announcements to his personal journals, you actually get a taste for just how radical he was. In his Dar- in his journal that he kept aboard the HMS Beagle, he has this line in here that he o- was almost wishing for Brazil to follow the example of Haiti, uh, which is a reference mm. to. Uh, The the Haiti African slaves who in 1803 actually overthrew their slave owners and created their own democratic government. So he's actually referencing in his – in his journal after he visits Brazil that he kind of wishes the slaves there would overthrow their white masters. Which is quite I mean, radical think too. Think about yeah. how radical that is. Uh, and also uh, in the life and letters of Charles Darwin in, in one of the autobiographical portions, he recounts um, getting into furious arguments with Fitzroy, the, the captain of the Beagle, mm. over the issue of slavery. At one point, uh, and this was a fight that almost got Darwin kicked off the Beagle. 
Uh, they were so furious at each other. At one point, uh, Fitzroy tries to defend himself by saying that, uh, as Darwin said, quote, and he told me that he had just visited a great slave owner who had called up many of his slaves and asked them whether they were happy and whether they wished to be free and all answered no. I then asked him, perhaps with a sneer, whether he thought that w- that the answer of a slave in the presence of their master was worth anything. Mm. Um, yeah, and he ends up, he, had, he has to go sleep <laughs> with uh, the, the rest of the, the crewmen that night, it sounds, because uh, because Fitzroy was so angry at him. And it, And it's just, it blows my mind that the stuff we hear most often about Darwin's writings, the stuff the creationists throw out there, like where Darwin himself admits that the eye seems too complex to have been created through the process of natural selection. And we hear that, but we don't hear any of the any of the positive stuff, the social stuff. Um, they're just it's cherry picking. It is cherry picking, but it's much worse than that. They're not just selecting one passage or another. They're misquoting these things. They're taking them out of context. They're making them. They're exaggerating them to make to make Darwin's statements sound worse than they actually are. Remember that quote we started off with from the blogs: "The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races." If you look at the context, it's clear that he's not talking about superiority of some race. He's not talking about genocide. He's actually making a, a, a more of a, a point on taxonomy. He's defending his theory, basically, because many people were criticizing it, saying there's all these breaks in the fossil record. If natural selection was correct, we should just see a smooth gradation between all the species. And Darwin is saying, no, it's actually because of extinction that that we have these gaps, that that looking at the world today, we're not going to see every transitional form between species. Here's the quote in context. This, again, is from The Descent of Man in Chapter 4, I believe. The great break in the organic chain between man and his nearest allies, which cannot be bridged over by any extinct or living species, has often been advanced as a grave objection to the belief that man is descended from some lower form. But this objection will not appear of much weight to those who, convinced by general reasons, believe in the general principle of evolution. Breaks incessantly occur in all parts of the series, some being wide, sharp, and defined, others less so. But all these breaks depend merely on the number of related forms which have become extinct. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man and a more civilized state, as we may hope, than the Caucasian. And some ape as low as the baboon instead of, at present, between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. All right, so there's clearly racist implications in there. Clearly he sees, you know, basically it's setting up the scenario where the Caucasian is a a more evolved uh, race. But that's what we've been acknowledging all along. Of course, Darwin's going to have views that are racist to a pers- to someone from our perspective looking back. But it's clear from reading this in context that that he's making a completely different point than what is being alleged by these anti-evolutionists. The From Darwin to Hitler book has quotes uh, from Darwin trying to paint him in the picture like he is approving of 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 lower you know races being wiped out by the higher races and the struggle for survival. 
setting that against his other published work and all his correspondence showing that he actually had uh, a sympathy for races and, and then holding that out as if that represents his views and then somehow that... Well, yeah, and, and if you look at the pseudoscience used by the racists at the time, Darwin's response was basically refuting them. Mm-hmm. Natural selection shows, and Darwin argues over and over again, that there is there's no fine line between species. That human beings have way more similarities. There are way more similarities between the races than there are actually differences. Uh, He emphasizes um, intellectual and moral similarities as well uh, and is is basically saying, look, it cannot be the case that that we are separate species. We all share a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. And the Christian bigots at the time understood exactly what he was trying to say because they attacked him on those grounds. The introduction from Darwin's Sacred Cause says, quote, a major criticism of origin of the species, particularly during the American War, was that Darwin had now bestialized the white man by contaminating his ancestral blood. Darwin had upturned the racist logic only to brutalize his own Anglo-Saxon kind, as it was said, uniting them not only with black people but with black apes. And R.G. Price adds that it was Archbishop Watley again who was then defended by the Catholic Church who took Darwin on on this basis too. So they claim, okay, well, Hitler was influenced by all of this. And uh, you can trace it through Nietzsche, you can uh, up to Hitler and everything else like that. Well, if you actually go and you look at Hitler's influences, he makes it plain what his influences are. There is no reference in Hitler's writings to Charles Darwin. In the Nuremberg trials, where they were actually gathering testimony and going through people's personal libraries and actually trying to find the intellectual origins of the ideas behind the Third Reich, there was, again, no reference to Darwin in any of the Nuremberg trials. There were, incidentally, there were references to some of those those theologians that were mentioned earlier and some of those bastardizations of science, like the, one, uh, like the one, an essay from the inequality of the human races that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But even where Hitler does refer to biological-style thinking, it's clear that his understanding of evolution, if he has one, is Lamarckian, it's pseudoscientific. If he was influenced by Darwin... It doesn't appear that he ever read it. I'm going to read a real quick summary by R.G. Price. He says, Hitler stated that racial purity was God's will. Darwin showed that there is no such thing as racial purity in the first place, and that secondly, races and species are not formed by God. Hitler said that segregation of species and races is a rigid law of nature. Darwin showed that there are no such rigid laws of nature. Hitler said that species only naturally mate with members of their same species. Darwin showed that many species Mm -hmm. naturally naturally hybridize. Hitler said that species are uniform in character. Darwin showed that there is a high degree of variation within species. Hitler advocated the use of race laws to favor only Nordic peoples, but Darwin stated that no such laws should be made. And Hitler despised sympathy and said that sympathy should not extend to all races, Darwin stated that sympathy was the highest moral value and that, indeed, sympathy was an important attribute for human success and that we should extend our sympathy to all people. Now, that is R.G. Price's summary, but he backs it up with tons and tons of quotes. And we're not talking like a couple line quotes 
here or there the way you'll find on these anti-evolutionist websites. He has entire pages, entire paragraphs yeah. reprinted in here. I'm showing flipping through this document here, and and in large portions of it, it's it's just quotes. And then he will occasionally break in to introduce the next quote. And but there, he's backing up his stuff with primary sources here. This is not just conjecture. You can find a lot of quotes that expose Darwin's racism, but it's the same type of racism that everyone else at that time would have had. Which doesn't excuse it. It no. doesn't well, make it okay. It's the same okay. thing they did with Lincoln. They, often they say, yeah. well, Lincoln's a racist because he gave some indication that he didn't think a black man was his social equal. Well, what what percentage of the white population at that time could have made a statement saying, oh, I'd like my daughter to marry a black man or something like that. It yeah, simply absolutely. wasn't done. I mean, you have to look at them within the context of their times. I mean, he's, he's radical for his time, yes, but he's not radical for our time. They are the ones that, uh, you know, we can thank our racially sensitive time we we can we can trace that back to these people yeah. who made those first struggles in that direction, but it's clear even though uh, Darwin was an abolitionist that he is he is Eurocentric. He does view his society as being near the top, but mm-hmm. when it comes to eugenic style thinking, Darwin has this to say in the Descent of Man. He says, as man advances in civilization and small tribes are united into larger communities, the simplest reason would tell each individual that he ought to extend his social instincts and sympathies to all members of the same nation, though personally unknown to him. This point being once reached, there is only an artificial barrier to prevent his sympathies from extending to the men of all nations and races. If indeed such men are separated from him by great differences in appearance or habits, experience unfortunately shows us how long it is before we look at them as our fellow creatures. This virtue, one of the noblest with which man is endowed, seems to arise incidentally from our sympathies, becoming more tender and more widely diffused, until they are extended to all sentient beings." As soon as this virtue is honored and practiced by some few men, it spreads throughout instruction and example to the young and eventually becomes incorporated into public opinion. Now, does that sound like somebody who wants to go out and, and exterminate these other races? He's talking about expanding circle, man. That's like, you know, expanding circle type stuff. Right. That's yeah. in Descent of Man. What the creationists want to say is that He's going to extend natural selection as like the virtue of nature. We should just behave like we are in the state of nature. We should just promote survival of the fittest. But here he's showing, no, he thinks a greater virtue is our morality, our sympathies, which we've gained. And we should extend tolerance to all people. That That is not the statement of a eugenicist. That is not the statement of a racist. The other thing that, that from the Darwin Hitler argument that's and in the review of it that that, that we read by uh, Edward Oakes there in, in Christianity Today, yeah. what I found particularly reprehensible was that they assume that there is this link between between Darwinism and societal decline. That any society that yeah. believes in evolution uh, is going to be an inferior society and lead to you know gas chambers and things like that. Okay. Well, look at Western we, Europe. Well, let's, yeah, Isn't let's talk true? about the empirical evidence for that. What if you could cross-reference on one axis the, the societal acceptance of evolution, mm-hmm. natural selection, and then take on the other axis and then take any measure you want of societal health? And in fact, that's been done uh, by Gregory Paul. Uh, the paper is called The Chronic Dependence of Popular Religiosity Upon Dysfunctional Psychosociological conditions, and if you look at his, uh, he has a, a index there of successful societies, and this could be things like healthcare, 
you know, uh, uh, supportive well, welfare, yeah. child well-being. So, so healthcare is a mark of uh, a successful society. I, I guess if you yes, I, you want to think of it that way. I but uh, child, any well, any measure you want to use, happiness of the people, life satisfaction. If you cross-reference that with, and then he has uh, acceptance of evolution in the country on the other axis. You, there's just like almost a, it's a, there's a little bit of spread, but the cloud is clearly correlated there. That the more accepting a country is of of acceptance of natural selection and evolution, the more healthy that society is. That's not saying that there's a cause and effect relationship, no, no, but no. certainly uh, the argument being made in the Darwin to Hitler thing is that there is a negative cause and effect relationship, that the more a society will come to accept that there's a struggle for survival or whatever, right. they try to link it, that we'll become more savage. There's simply no evidence to that, and in fact, there's evidence to the contrary. So, so not only do these people me- misrepresent Darwin's argument, they misrepresent Darwin. This is, uh, I can't believe that people take this stuff seriously. Oh, they do. And boy, do they ever. Luke, then, what is the empirical evidence on racism and how it correlates with these things. I mean, could we show, rather than grabbing little references from history here or there, finding quotes to support either position, when we actually study people, if you believe in evolution, will that make you more racist? If you accept Christianity, will that make you less racist? Yeah, the, the problem with all those sorts of connections is that there's is that the old kind of... Um, bugbear of, of social science is third variable problems. That is, are, are you able to cleanly measure the influence of one thing on another thing without anything else contaminating it? And that's the biggest problem there. Right. With racism, it's because uh, the problem with that is, is that societal views of race have changed in polite company. It used to be that people wouldn't have any problem admitting, oh, yeah, sure, I don't like those black people. And if you look at surveys from the 50s and 60s, they'll ask, they would ask people straight up, would you, you know, let a black person patronize your business or... You know, and and there you had somewhat of a spread. Some people said yes or no, particularly in the American South or among you know lower SES. They were they were comfortable self-reporting racial uh, biases and negative attitudes. You can't do that anymore because people hide them. I think racial attitudes have certainly improved since then, but the fact that people were more honest with themselves that they were racist back then, uh, there's. Uh, I kind of miss that yeah. in, in a lot of ways. It makes it hard because now what you have to do is use indirect means to get it because yeah. people aren't even aware, not just because of social pressure, like, but people to themselves. themselves may not even know. What do you want oh, to, yeah. How can you do that when somebody then is not even willing to admit to themselves a negative attitude might be coloring their decision? There right. You have to then rely on kind of sneaky, indirect means to get at that. If the question is, what is religion's effect on prejudice? And particularly with religion that says, you're supposed to be pro-social, you're supposed to be nice, I'm a religious person, I couldn't think something bad about somebody. That that, uh, makes it even more difficult than to detect whether that person is genuinely racist or not. Well, is there a way that you can actually measure, you know, subliminal or, you know, below the level of conscious racist thoughts? I mean, we can measure unconscious responses in psychology. Yeah, the, the, the best way to do that is to actually get some sort of behavioral condition where you can have the person behave in a way that they don't know they're being observed. Right. And, and a clandestine observation. And so there are the studies where you'll do a, a comparison of somebody in a condition where they're interacting, let's say they're all white, if your subject is white. Right. In most of the cases it is. Interacting with a black person versus another white person, how do they behave differently? Uh, and then cross-reference that with what you might know about that person in regards to their religion or you know attitudes that they filled out earlier on a questionnaire. That's one way to do it. I'm wondering if there's just simple studies like 
heart rate increases yeah. and that sort you of thing. You can look at nonverbal behavior like yeah. uh, like blinking, uh, turning your body away mm. from somebody, uh, you know, pressing your lips tightly, all those things that would indicate discomfort. And yeah, sure. you, you do find relationships. The funny thing about that, though, is that there seems to be a disconnect between somebody's conscious questionnaire type self-report of whether they're racist or not and their unconscious behaviors of uh, what we call implicit measures there. There's actually a, one cool study with religion and prejudice was done by uh, this guy named Bat C. Daniel Batson at University of Kansas, which I think was particularly clever because, again, he it was predicated on that somebody would want to hide how racist they really were. Of course. So he had religious measures on people and, like, you know, how, how traditionally versus... Uh, non-traditionally religious they were and then he had a situation he had two different conditions the subject shows up and they think they're going to evaluate like a video clip of movies I guess it was like a silent movie and then he said uh, there's two cubicles and in the cubicles cubicles the subject can look in and see there's like a person sitting already in the chair and then an empty chair in one of the cubicles, there's a black person next to the empty chair, and in the other one, it's a white person. So essentially, the person has a 50-50 choice. Are they going to choose the the little mini cubicle to sit in next to the black guy or the white guy? Mm-hmm. What he did was uh, he said, uh, in one of the conditions, he said, oh, the movies are different in the different cubicles. This one is, I don't know, Charlie Chaplin. This one's Three Stooges. And the other uh, one, he says, oh, our VCRs broke, so actually it's it's the same movie in both uh, you can, uh, you know, it doesn't matter which one you sit in. Right. But what he did was then he cross-referenced how religious the person said they were earlier in a questionnaire with the choice they make of where to sit. The rationale being, if the uh, if the movie projector's broke and it's the same movie, you don't want to sit. You don't want to look like you're then choosing arbitrarily to sit next to the white guy as opposed to the black guy because that would be unhidden. It would right. be overtly prejudiced if you chose that. In the condition though, where the where the two different movies are showing, you could always mask it by saying, "Oh, it's not that I have I anything against." I prefer Chaplin. Yeah, I, I want to go see this other movie. And what he found, mm. the bottom line was with religion was what he found was that the higher traditional, uh, intrinsic religion that is how important it is to you. Sure. It, it correlated with actually um, sitting next to the black person, but only in the condition when when the movies were the same, when it wouldn't have been obvious that you're not trying to. So sit people next are to the compensating black guy. and they're saying, "Oh, I'm going to sit by the black because I'm not a racist." Yeah. But then when um, when it's not when you can hide it, they go sit by the white guy because they can say, oh no no no, I just I, I prefer the Three Stooges over yeah. Charlie Chaplin. It wasn't more next to the white guy, mm-hmm. but it was but it was uh, relatively equally. In other words, uh, what you said was that his interpretation it was overcompensation. Right. That they that the highly religious person has a certain pressure to say, don't look racist. I'm really a nice person, and that when they can not hide that, they they uh, they go and and do something that looks even racially um, nice. Sure. But when they can mask it through some sort of rationalization, then the inner prejudice comes out uh, and so they uh, and they behave differently. So that's that's one way that you could set these experiments up to get around the person's own presentational bias is to make it as if they can't even see it themselves. Sure. Yeah, so and and he found that the non-traditionally religious people that these are people he called high on quest religiosity, it's very open-ended, sure. low fundamentalism. They actually uh didn't carry either way. It didn't matter to them in mm-hmm. either condition whether the the film was different and the same, they just sat next to randomly 50-50. Hmm. Yeah. So that that's one way that you can do these sorts of studies. And didn't I see like on American Scientific American Frontiers or somewhere I I believe I saw a video about there was a set of tests, and it was based on the time that your brain took to calculate certain relationships where they were trying to 
trying to measure levels of unconscious racism yeah. or, or racial prejudice. That's the IAT, the Implicit Association Test. So that that was developed back in the late 90s where you have, uh, your task is you have on two sides of the screen, the right and the left side, you're, you have uh, words that you have, and then uh, often it's done in a race context where you have to pair those with white and black. So at mm-hmm. first it starts off pretty easy because you then have to press a response key to have the word that comes up in the center be with a category. So sometimes it's like a happy word that goes with the happy side and then a negative word with a negative side right. and then they have okay. like a, a matching with white and black things but then they sw- start switching the categories on you where it's white or negative black or positive and then they switch oh. those white and positive black and negative and well, then it gets uh, trickier because, it, then you have yeah. to then uh, well you're sitting there doing that and I would encourage everyone to take this test you can go to Project Implicit online and they have a, a series <laughs> I think of I have a, taken this test actually yeah, yeah. It, 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 you find yourself uh, becoming kind of tripped up by your own uh, uh, categories where you have to then think about it did I is this pleasant uh, uh, white and what you do is when you subtract the reaction times uh, there's there's a, uh, a sl- uh, most people show a slight bias as you would expect in race for pairing positive related things with white uh, mm-hmm. sometimes now, it's is that, is that too, white people even. or is that in is that white and black people that's the thing that uh, is one of the things with the test is it picks up on societal prejudice that sometimes even black people share so you're so it's not always favoring your own race it's also it's often favoring the race that society Favors. Yeah. In fact, wow. if you look at the if you look at the clip that's on online too on Scientific American Frontiers, uh, you have what they did. They didn't use race in that case. It was uh, the one they show was using gender stereotypes. So like women mm. in the at sure. home versus men in the workplace. And that uh, Alan Alda is the host there, who's famous for his involvement in like feminist type causes yeah. and things. But he's taking the, that test and he actually shows a slump, somewhat of a slight bias for women to be staying home as, and men in the workplace and things. As the developer of the test, who's a female, Mazarin Banerjee. Uh, she showed actually she reported that she when she took it an even stronger favoritism for women in the home even though she's a professional that is that's unbelievable mm-hmm. the, yeah. the effects society has on now, one, of the, even one of the debates is that what does that mean though does that mean that you yeah. have are personally biased or does that mean that you simply have a knowledge of societal stereotypes right. but they've done a, an impressive correlation uh, of that with actual behavioral things like the way you behave a white person with a black person in an interview and stuff it correlates the degree to which you're biased on that test shows that it correlates with things like discomfort with black people in a behavioral sense that is you, wow. you, 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 you nod less you don't make eye contact that sort of thing Hmm. And so, you know, the question then becomes, okay, so let's say that you got this cool measure, this new toy in your sandbox of science that you can detect, implicit bias that the person might not even be aware of themselves. What does it correlate with things like, you know, what we're talking about if the, with religion? And what they found is complicated because it's, it depends on the type of religion you're talking about. Right. And, you know, we've always mm-hmm. talked about in this show that there's characteristics like personality characteristics that are all bound up with religion like authoritarianism and such. Right. So the question then becomes... If uh, when you when you see these results, yes, in fact, traditionally religious people do show a racial bias. But is it because they're religious, or is it because they're traditional or conservative or authoritarian? Right, right. So the right. so the studies on this try to show that if you could separate pure Christianity, just endorsement of Christian principles, they try to statistically peel away the authoritarianism, and you find that. You know, Christian uh, orthodoxy, they call it, a belief in Christian principles, is slightly negatively associated with prejudice on the IET. They're actually less prejudiced. Good. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. That's requiring you to peel away all those other factors like authoritarianism or fundamentalism from that measure statistically. That is, if you could put it verbally, 
when, if you could have somebody who's Christian, who isn't authoritarian or fundamentalist, they would actually be somewhat less prejudiced. So we're talking right. like very liberal Christians then? The, yes. Yeah. So, uh, But that's a glass half empty, half full sort of thing. Right. But in real life, I guess somebody could counter, as I would counter, you they're heavily correlated. The Christ, uh, intrinsic personal religiosity is correlated with authoritarianism. Right. But what we could say even on the level of the data is that racism doesn't have to follow from Christianity. But that's not fair because they get to claim that anyone who supports the theory of evolution is a racist, but we can't turn it around and say, well, anyone who supports Christianity is a racist. Man. Well, that's the price. Damn nuance again. That's the price you pay for trying to be intellectually honest. Yeah. Now, one thing we've noticed before, though, when we've been looking at, you know, how things correlate with religion, especially when it comes to moral values, is that sometimes religious people tend to have a blind spot to their own moral failings. Yeah, the thing about having about religion that might be negative is that if it teaches you that you're somehow justified or righteous uh, and that you don't need to further examine your attitudes, that is people that, you know, social desirability, I'm not capable of thinking bad things because mm-hmm. I'm I'm a good person. That that's the dangerous part. It's not that it would predispose you to be nasty or anything if you weren't before, but that if it somehow teaches you that if you follow these teachings, you're good to go or that God sanctions your behavior. So there's some research that shows that, yes, that highly religious people, it's not that they're necessarily more nasty or or nice than anybody else, but that they're trained to think that their behavior is less is more beyond reproach and that that in this prejudice the, the prejudice research the problem is that those sorts of things become more manifested when you don't examine them an unexamined attitude is more dangerous like like kind of like what dave said at the beginning of this that that w- it's it's actually better when the prejudice is is manifested obviously yeah. because then you can say don't do that or don't say that but if it's hidden in some ways it becomes less uh, easy to find and to locate and to question your own prejudice. So much of what we're seeing in the country right now, I think, is this racism that um, uh, people are not able to acknowledge themselves even uh, in, in the reaction we're seeing to the president. It's it's what Jimmy Carter was talking about. Most of the people do not even realize that they're racist. People are unwilling to, to even examine the possibility that they might have racism that they aren't even conscious of that might affect their behavior. And yet they're very quick to point out how <laughs> people are claiming that uh, Obama is racist, uh, right. that oh, the Democrats course. are racist. I mean, there's a lot of projection going on. Glenn Beck and said he had a deep-seated hatred of white people, <laughs> presumably yeah, yeah, his own yeah, white family. Culture, well, and, 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 and he said that on, on the Fox morning show, and then to their credit, I guess, the, the Fox guys were like, no, uh, he's got white people who work for him. There's a bunch of people on his staff who are white, and it's like that—that's <laughs> totally missing the point well, too. And, and I think I think even the topic we talked about today, Darwin's views on race, and trying to blame natural selection and Darwin for Hitler and everything that followed, yeah. uh, I think is in part an attempt to absolve Christianity from its own role. In in, the, in those tragedies, absolutely right. Because if you're pointing the finger at Darwin and those evil evolutionary naturalists, then we're steering attention away from other very uncomfortable facts, like the fact that it was a Christian practice from the Middle Ages onto the Renaissance to have Jews wear yellow badges to identify themselves as a separate race. 
the fact that between the 13th and 19th centuries where periodically people are going into the Jewish parts of town and into Jewish villages and slaughtering people, that those mass murderers were authorized by Christians. Or the fact that some very famous Christians contributed to anti-Semitism, especially in Germany, like Martin Luther, can't get much more famous than him. In 1543, Martin Luther writes this book, The Jews and Their Lies, where he tells good Christians to burn Jewish synagogues, destroy their houses, burn their prayer books, get rid of the Talmud, kill rabbis, that sort of thing. Martin Luther's anti-Semitic writings were frequently cited in Nazi propaganda. You can't find a reference of Hitler talking about Darwin. You can't find a reference to Darwin in the Nuremberg Trials. But you will find Martin Luther, and you will find plenty of Christian publications. For example, Eugenics and Christianity, Questions of Sterilization, Northernization, Euthanasia, and Marriage. During the Nuremberg Trials, it came out that this book was, a, was an influence on Dr. Karl Brandt, who is Hitler's own personal physician and head of the Euthanasia Program. And the book gives all sorts of reasons from a Christian perspective why sick children should be sterilized at birth, why mentally handicapped people should be exterminated. The book actually makes reference to Martin Luther's view that mentally handicapped kids, uh, mentally handicapped people or imbeciles don't have souls. They're just a outward vessel with no soul. And as Luther said, he would have, uh, referring to this 12-year-old child uh, that he met who was an imbecile, that it would have been better to have killed the child by drowning than let it go on living. Views like that did influence the Nazis. They did influence Hitler. Anyways, the point is not to turn around and blame the Holocaust on Christianity. I don't want to stoop to these apologists' level, and I also don't think that's what the Bible actually teaches, not the New Testament anyways. There are some wonderful passages in the epistles of Paul about how we are all one. There's no difference between Jew or Greek or male or female in Christ. So I'm not saying Christianity is to blame for the Holocaust. The point is to remind these apologists that Christianity was distorted to support Nazism, that there were some Christians who did feel it was consistent with their religion to support eugenics, euthanasia, and genocidal policies. So if some apologist is going to attack Darwin and all of his ideas because of whatever tenuous connections he can make between the two, then by that same standard, they need to throw out Luther, they need to throw out the Bible, they need to throw out Christianity as well. So I don't, I don't think modern Christianity is any more of a threat in this area than Darwin is. But it does bother me that apologists are so willing to whitewash their own history and just point the finger at somebody else. To me, that's scary. It shows there's no critical reflection. It shows that this kind of arrogant belief that, okay, God is on our side. Our, our side is righteous. Our side is the source of everything good that comes out of society. And these, these other people, these Darwinists who challenge some, our some of our beliefs, they're the source of everything bad. Everything that's wrong emanates ultimately from them and their ideas. That, to me, is dangerous because they're not going to have those critical capacities to actually look, hey, where are my ideas? Maybe, where are my prejudices? Could I be harboring racist attitudes in some areas? We have to have the courage to be able to see some of these things in ourselves before we're ever going to be able to 
transcend them. Yeah, I actually found a passage that you guys would I think that you'll appreciate this as much as I did. This is by this is written by Frederick Douglass. You know that the slave well, freed himself, Douglas, and yeah. it's uh, it was on his commentary about religion with his master. Mm. Let me just read just a real quick blurb here. He said, uh, "In August 19, 1832, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting, uh, and there experienced religion. I indulged a faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane." I was disappointed in both these respects. It made it neither made him to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. If I had if it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in his ways, for I believe mm-hmm. him to be a much worse man after his conversion than before. Prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. So there's, I think that's a good in, in, in capturing the essence of it. Might not have made him more or less racist, but it would provide it was a justification. Amen, for Mr. Douglas. Case. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. and that's the key. We're going to wrap up today with a, a very special ending for our 55th episode here. Props. Yeah, uh, um, it's a a props to uh, John Boswell. And most of you may not know the name, but many of you have already seen his work. In fact, it was posted a couple of times to our forum, doubtcast.forummotion.net. It's a video called A Glorious Dawn. And what uh, Mr. Boswell did here was take clips from the Carl Sagan series, Cosmos. Carl Sagan, a a uh, favorite here on the show. Um, Most definitely. Oft-referenced, um, even fairly regularly um, imitated. And uh, Mr. Boswell has taken these clips and uh, tweaked them ever so slightly to um, create a song. And it's Carl Sagan singing uh, a song called A Glorious Dawn. It's fantastic. It's not only a sound editing um, masterpiece, but it's also, I, I think it upholds Carl Sagan's spirit very nicely. It was really cool. I was, I, when I first saw it, of course, the first reaction was to laugh my ass off, but the second yeah. reaction was, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah, it's a good song. Yeah. Like, I want this on my iPod. It's good stuff. And, uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna play out on that, on that track today. Yes, he's given us permission to air it, so we're going to do that. So, uh, before we start the music, uh, once again, you have been listening to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle at slash doubtcast. Send in submissions to the Gospel of Doubt, especially ones where you can get audio are great. And that's all for this week. And here he is, our own very favorite, Mr. Carl Sagan. It is true that... I'm not very good at uh, singing songs, but uh, here's, here's a try. Network of wormhole.
past Reasonable Doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>